All right, all right, all right. Welcome to a new season of Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host and friend and colleague, Sam Moyne, and I talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our mind. How was your break, Sam? It was great. I, you know, did a couple of European trips, was held in Barcelona for a day due to, you know, engine failure or something, but uh, enjoyed it and uh it's good to be back. Good to be facing down classes. It's a, it's a, it could be exciting, and we're, we've got I, we're we're still planning the season. So if any Pete, you all all listeners out there have ideas on who we should talk to, you should let us know. We're easily available on uh, email and such. Um, um, but yeah, no, it should be it should be it should be a fun season. And we start off with a with a, with a bang this one with a really fun episode. Uh, who are we talking to, Sam? We're talking to Tim Shank, who is uh, an old student of mine, but much more importantly, a uh, leading left intellectual who's done a an important new survey of American history bearing on our present and future called the Realigners, and it's it's a fun chat. I, I have to say, before this, I had forgotten that Dissent still, he's the editor of Dissent, and I thought it had ended when Dissent and Commentary had merged into Dysentery. I thought, I, I didn't I didn't follow it beyond that point. Is it still a thing? It, it is. I've written for it, and uh, so are endowed chairs, and, uh, you know, <laughs> once you get yours, uh, we have a dining room set between oh, us. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. I mean, I don't know. If I keep doing this podcast, it may never happen. I don't think this podcast is a qualification for that, but uh, it's still, (laughs) I'm so glad you started it. You know, ever, ever, ever since you, uh, ever since you, uh, you gave up the what was it, the, he- the the loose chair in the American Century or whatever you used to have um, uh, uh, for um, for uh, President Taft's old chair, uh, you've been uh, you've been pretty pretty smug over there in your uh, in, in your fancy office. So it's uh, pretty good. Anyway, but this is a real fun episode. Um, uh, um, we we really get into it both about the um, about the book and about uh, contemporary American politics. And um, about uh, whether uh, Le Diplomat in Washington is act- is is actually capital A actually capital G uh, uh, good. Um, hint, it is. Okay, let's get into it. This podcast is generously supported by Themis Bar Review. For more information about Themis, check out themisbar.com. That is T-H-E-M-I-S-B-A-R.com. Thank you very much. And now back to the show. Well, for our first uh, episode this season, it's a thrill, for me at least, to welcome Timothy Schenk, who is assistant professor of history at George Washington University. He's the co-editor of the longstanding uh, left magazine Descent, and most importantly for our purposes today, he's the author of a fantastic new book called Realigners, Partisan Hacks, Political Visionaries, and the Struggle to Rule American Democracy, and that's what we're going to be uh, talking about today. So thanks, Tim, to begin with for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So as the title implies, you know, it's short and sweet. This is a history of realignment. uh, And it's set in one country, our country. And I would say it, it tends in in the direction of kind of intellectual and ideological history to supplement the kind of work that 
political scientists tend to do in thinking about realignment. Um, so could you just start by saying, you know, how, how, why did you devise this study? Why did you choose this framework of realignment uh, to review the American political tradition from the perspective of 2022 or three? Yeah, well, like a lot of other people, I spent the last few years thinking about democracy. And one feature of the crisis of democracy literature that came into focus for me as I was working on the book was that a kind of tendency to drain the politics out of the way we talk about democracy. And by which I mean that there's a sort of centrist version of this, which talks about the crisis of democracy as a crisis of norms and institutions, which are almost outside of politics. And this is a very familiar left critique. But I think there's a left version of this as well, which assumes that if we get the right structural reforms in place, that will have a functioning system. And the thing that sidestepped in both of those conversations is just the basic work of building an electoral majority. And this is something that seems to me that or foundation for anything you want to do with what comes after in democracy is, well, how do you persuade people to support what you're advocating? And as I started to think about this more, it just came through to me that if we're trying to understand the role of the political elite in this process, where power lies, that the act of forging a coalition that brings together millions of people is a unique aspect of modern representative democracy and the essence of our political elite's power and about what makes a system sustainable. So all of those factors blended together. And then as an Americanist, when I was thinking about how I focus on the experience of the United States in particular, I note repeatedly in the book that so many of the trends that we see playing out in American electoral history, most notably over the last 60 years, the migration of working class voters away from a party of the center left. This is not an American phenomenon by any stretch of the imagination, but our moment is strange for two reasons in the United States. One being that if you look over the long sweep of American history, there does tend to be a more or less dominant party, more or less most of the time. So the failure of either party to build a dur durable lasting coalition, that's one problem. And the other element, element is in the United States, the dominance of the two party system, which is an aberration globally. You know, the fact that in Israel, for instance, you have a parliamentary system, you can put together your majorities after the election. Well, because this the importance of building majority is so uniquely distinctive in the United States, at least building electoral majority, this combination of our system requiring majorities ahead of time and our moment seeming to make it so difficult to build majorities, and then the absence of this question from the broader discussion of the crisis of democracy, all of that seemed to fit together for me in making the case for a book that put this question of majority making at the center of our history of American democracy. Absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, this is a, a presentist history, if, if I may say so, and, and rightly so. And I totally share your view that we're, we're in a situation of partisan gridlock uh, with class de-aligned parties. And what we need is a re realignment. And we don't know how soon that will come. People like Corey Robin and Matt Karp have made that kind of claim, including in, in your pages and elsewhere. But this is a book that kind of sets up that um, that reality very clearly and and tells us what the left should you know want uh, and out of this moment and how it should understand this moment. But uh, I'm sure we'll get into you know a lot of you know questions uh, about about that basic frame. But I, I did want to begin with a question about chronology. Um, we'll get to the end later. You know, I'm, I'm very, in a sense, 
puzzled by why the book ends with Barack Obama and not Donald Trump, who can be read much more clearly as an attempted realignment politician. I mean, there's an amazing interlude where, you know, Trump's coming is forecast. But um, let's save that and start at the other end um, and uh, with the beginning of the book. Because I would have thought, you know, again, I'm not a, an Americanist like you, but the, I, I would have thought it would take a while for the partisan realignment story to get started in, in U.S. history. Uh, and that if you were going to have a chapter about the framers or founders since you start in 1787, we would really be dealing with a group of people who don't want democracy to get started. Uh, and they craft a document and they craft arrangements that are, 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 are obviously responsive to a, a lot of politics going on outside the rooms they're sitting in. But in a sense, they succeed for a strikingly long time in setting up um, a, a system that's elite rule full stop and is not yet the kind of contestation you chart so beautifully in the rest of the book. So, I mean, what I have in mind is we need sort of Thomas Jefferson critiquing that system and, and then above all, Andrew Jackson coming. And so just talk me through the first, you know, the first chapter, like why start there and why start there in the way you do as if like from day one, we're in this system of kind of constructing a majority when actually, you know, the goal is to keep majoritarianism at bay on day one. Well, in a sense, it's holding those two elements together that lets us understand how modern democracy is supposed to work, how this representative system is supposed to work. And what I wanted to do with that opening chapter is one, explain why we this sort of need for this, this two-party system gets built in and therefore this need for electoral majorities. This is the design of the American political system because of the Constitution is an important part of the story. And also to note that this centrality of linking up elite political behavior with some kind of public opinion. This isn't something that comes later. This is a right. feature that's built into the system from the start, but in a very particular way. And in a sense, almost if the goal for today is to explain to, among other people, my comrades on the left, why majority making democratic politics is for all its flaws, the best hope we have, I think I owe it to readers to also explain how the system was never designed to promote radical change and how it would the sort of odds are tilted against us from the start and to explain why. And so you see with the creation of the constitution, a system where, and here also it's also just, uh, there's this book that I think has kind of been a bit forgotten now outside of the ranks of professional historians, book called Inventing the People by historian Edmund Morgan, which I think is absolutely fantastic and almost a more cynical reading of the constitution than we're familiar with in the era of sort the 1619 project, where I think the interpretation today is, oh, the Constitution, we see it's a, a sort of a popular left interpretation. The Constitution is this tool of white supremacy and of capitalist domination. And for instance, look at the Electoral College. Well, clearly it was never designed to present the will of the people in any significant way. And also the only reason why we have it is because it was designed to entrench slave power. You know, this is a crude rendering of an interpretation, but I think the broad strokes of a subtler version is something that would get a lot of acceptance on the left. To me, what was striking was seeing James Madison in 1787 saying, actually, no, like popular vote for the president. And I am totally fine with that. Let's go ahead and go all the way. And this gets to 
what the system was designed to do as Madison saw it and Hamilton saw it as the rest of the framers more or less saw it, which is, according to Madison, why he wasn't afraid of holding holding out the presidency to the popular vote was saying that, well, the wider the field, the easier it will winnow down to an elect few, what was popularly referred to at the time as a natural aristocracy. So the idea of the system is that by opening up the vote to the what at the time was like the widest possible number. Of course, in retrospect, this is so limited. It's white men, property owning, but that's actually a pretty capacious category. Still, by opening up the election of the presidency to this massive audience, which looks fairly democratic from our perspective, at least a generous perspective today. In fact, Madison and the rest of the framers saw it as a way of providing legitimacy to a system that at the end of the day would govern in the interests of the natural aristocracy. Now, they thought the natural aristocracy would also govern in the interests of the country as a whole. But just to point out that democracy qua democracy, you know, this notion, which is, I think, still prominent in a lot of reformer circles today, where, oh, if we got rid of the electoral college, if we got rid of the filibuster, if we just threw open the system to straight majority rule, that would be a massive victory in itself. I think I think attending to the cynicism, one might say the realism of the founders of Madison saying, sure, get rid of the Electoral College. That's fine. We're still going to get what we want. This lays out the problem from the start, which then helps us understand why both majority making it so essential to the functioning of the system, but how under the right circumstances, it can perform some truly transformative functions. But the circumstances you really, really have to get you really have to get them right. Okay, so just to follow up, I mean, I, I, I love that counterintuitive point that if we look carefully at the sources, there's, there's you know, democracy from the start. I mean, that word isn't in the Constitution, but never mind. There's, there's popular politics that frighteningly can be designed to produce elite rule um, and that the framers uh, have that as their plan. What I guess I'm still wondering about is whether that framing or that starting point reads out this series of, let's call them populist challenges to elite rule, which um, the system was not designed uh, to, you know, invite. It it was it was designed to, in a sense, keep them at bay, including in in the framers' rejection of of parties themselves. And so I have in mind Jefferson 1800, but especially. Jackson, you know, and later the Populist Party and, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and Donald Trump. So it just helped me there. Yeah. So in a sense, if the point of part one is to explain the question of like why we have elections in the first place and why they matter so much and how elections can serve this counterintuitive purpose of reinforcing elite rule, then the other element, this other sort of piece of the story in chapter one is showing how those framers who intended elections to be this more or less sort of neutral validation of the folks at the top, how in the 1790s, they almost instantly fall into uh, intra-elite civil war of their own, and how Jeffersonians and Hamiltonians, especially the Jeffersonians, they discover that majority making, appealing to this limited but still popular electorate, that's a great way of sort of breaking a tie within the ruling class. So this first instance by 1800, how does Jefferson get to declare the end of partisan warfare? By building an electoral majority. And so the discovery of that by someone like Madison, who is very much, at least rhetorically, on the opposite side of this position in the 1780s, seeing them, these founders stumble into majoritarian politics, that's an extraordinary moment. And then even more impressive in its own way is the seeming the collapse of federalism as an organized political force and the entrenchment of what seems 
by 1820 to be this post-partisan political climate that the founders had envisioned. So it's almost this three-step process at the start. You see both the creation of a system where the public is to be appealed to, but not mobilized in any significant way through political parties. Then the founders will say what Jefferson will say, what Madison will say, this almost like passing phase of partisanship where organized majorities are necessary to break this deadlock. But once that's done, then you can go back to the founding plan, the seeming validation of the plan of that program by 1820. And then that's setting the stage for the total upheaval blowing it up in the 1820s. Although I think worth noting too, that Jacksonians, they're not saying we're coming out of nowhere. If you listen to Jackson, if you listen to Van Buren, they say we are in the tradition of Jefferson, we are in the tradition of Madison. So that legacy of the 1790s, that, that majoritarian moment, it gets picked up and mobilized again in very different circumstances in the 1820s. But you almost, you can't understand that early, that later moment without reckoning with this crucial period in the 1790s. And that all of this, again, is happening to the same folks, that they are laying out the rules for the game, sort of breaking their own, by their own lights, breaking their own rules, but then establishing inadvertently a framework that will help structure American politics until now. All of that just made me feel like it was worth dragging folks back through the founding period one more time. Yeah, so actually that kind of hits on, gets me to some of what I was curious about, because I have a lot of questions about this book. I found some of it a, a little strange. And one of the things I found strange about the book was that it starts off with this like kind of critical lens, but then most of it is like a really, really, really deeply conventional political history. Um, it's the kind of book that you used to, you know, I mean, a lot of the history, like these kind of capsule histories of great men who are familiar to people who took AP U.S. history. Maybe they're not like the greatest hits. It's like not Jackson, but Van Buren. You know, it's, you know, Mark Hanna, all these characters who are extremely common. And their stories are told in like a, um, a, you know, not unconventional way. And so I wondered a little bit, and, you know, social history, economic history is completely left to the side. Um, like nothing happens other than great men acting. And, you know, one woman, one black, you know, like, but it's like just a, a series of normal, like a, a famous people doing stuff. Um, uh, and so, and I wondered a little bit how you thought about it. Cause again, you keep this kind of like start, like a critical tone throughout while you're doing it. Kind of like you're doing mystery science theater 3000 of your own Doris Kurtz Goodwin book. And so I wonder a little bit like, is the mode of this like really conservative? Like you're saying like the political moves we made in the 1990, the, the, the history of politics in 19 was right and all of the moves of modern history are kind of a mistake or cause us to miss something. A lot of stuff going out of that question. So maybe why, why don't we tackle the methodology question first, and then we can go to the substance and the political intervention later. I would say what I was trying to do with the book was not return to this sort of vintage 1950s era history, but rather take into account that I would, my maybe more generous way of meaning the book would say, it's not that social social history, economic history, and the rest are absent, but rather this book is not about those transformations, but it is how the political elite responded to them. And that the advantage I have over this sort of 1950s history is all the work that's come in between. So you can see, for instance, a place of class conflict, racial conflict, struggles for expansion of democracy, all of that is on the table in my book in a different way than if you were to go back to those earlier histories. So I recognize, so it is about reconstructing the views of elite political actors, because I do think that matters. At the end of the day, I think that political elite can form this cloistered world and that understanding their perspective is important, but showing that they are part of a wider system that so many historians over the last 70 plus years have brought into focus that wasn't available to that earlier generation. So ideally, it's a not it's not a full-blown synthesis that's great, that attempts to create a total history of the period, but rather a reconstruction of those worldviews of these actors, actors who have 
in some cases, I think just not been as attended to as they should have been. Uh, for instance, Charles Sumner, I think is absolutely fascinating figure, someone who I think has been lost a bit in current historiography. And that we can understand these, the gambit of the book is that we can understand with a degree of nuance and complexity, those larger structural changes that social historians, cultural historians can bring into focus by drawing attention to these individuals following those changes over time, and that you can do that without succumbing to the sort of the narcissism and the myopia that too often afflict, afflicts uh, histories of elites. Now, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but that was the intention of the book. Yeah, yeah. So I wondered in your first answer to Sam, though, whether you're in fact actually a pretty closet structuralist with all of this political history. And the basic story would be like the American Constitution requires realignments. And the reason it does so is because it's, um, you know, like – the presidency is a singularly important role, which is very different from parliamentary systems. Um, as you note, even, I mean, you noted in your answer, America's two-party system is really unique in the world. We have no, Duverger's law turned out not to be true um, for any uh, system, even with first-past-the-post elections, because of the lack of a presidency, and particularly at later, but as I've argued elsewhere, because of the existence of party primaries, like people can kind of come into the party system. Um, but so the question is, like, are realigners, is it is this is this a, like, like basically the Constitution requires them? That's the kind of view that would, um, say, uh, the responsible party government people would have taken in the 19th, which is like, the American political system is such a disaster if it didn't have these entities, and therefore the it's not individual action, or individual action is, in fact, being driven by the, but it's like, not structural forces in the sense of the economy, which again, we could talk about how much you, but it, the, but like the American constitution creates these characters because it is what's necessary to make it function at all. So I would say uh, the unsatisfying in general, but always to me really, really fruitful in particular, when you get into the particulars answer has to be, it's about structure, you're, it's about maneuvering within constraints, right? So there, the system more or less does require two parties, but the shape of the, those two parties, the issues that they choose to fight about, the institutions that they rest upon, all of that is up to us. And of course, the structure of the constitution itself is a product of human design. It's not handed down to us from above. If we wanted to change the system, we could. So it's important to be clear that these are constraints that we are imposing on ourselves, even if the sort of degree of change would be something that's, you know, beyond our capacity to, uh, beyond our sense of what the system could actually handle right now. But to me, what's striking is, okay, if you have a system that's biased toward two parties and that works best when one of them, you either have a functioning bipartisan-ish system or one is so dominant that it can force through legislation, well, then that's a really broad framework. And so maybe to get into some specifics, the sort of one way in which I'm trying to bring in, say, like a social economic history perspective, uh, there is a moment in the United States, the Gilded Age, when questions about the brutal transition to industrial capitalism are at the forefront of American political debate. And that Republicans are able to forge a cross-class coalition devoted to make, binding millions of people behind the party of business to me, that's really striking. And it's a case where you see political elites responding to this broader transformation and the need for a pro-business majority, you know, wouldn't have expressed itself in the same way in the 1850s or in the 1950s. So how within the broad framework of the system, political actors are always responding to the particular demands of the moment. To me, that's what makes it exciting. And that's when it gets to, when I say that I want to bring our politics back into the history of democracy, that's what I'm thinking of. So I think one way to explore this could be uh, talking about one of the chapters that I'm selecting at, at random, the W.B. Du Bois chapter, which which does pose this kind of basic question, can you uh, get out of the bipartisan system um, and what's set and what's what's not? But let me, uh, you know, ask a 
my own methodological question before getting there. Uh, so I think, you know, David's posed this in, in a somewhat different way than I would, but there is something as, you know, as a kind of, if we're interested in the genre of this book, that's old fashioned, but I think it's deliberate. Um, you're trying to write a new version of Richard Hofstadter's The American Political Tradition for a very different time. And and without the, as you said, the consensus politics that, you know, he epitomized. It's kind of interesting that, you know, Hofstadter's not in the index. Uh, he's in one of the blurbs from, uh, you know, my former colleague and your uh, teacher, Eric Foner. But it it seems as if you you did start with that as a model uh, and that accounts along with the kind of, you know, dark arts, the trade book, which require characters and so forth. Um, that accounts for the kind of form of this book. And I just want to hear more from you about like, what, what are the possibilities of returning to that a Hofstadterian kind of, you know, example and trying to, you know, renovate it in, in its content. Um, because that's what you've, that's, that is the gambit of the book. And I just want to hear from you in retrospect, like what were the um, costs as well as the opportunities um, of that, of that choice? Yeah. I mean, one version of sort of the origins of the book is something I could have said in response to your other question is like, listen, like I woke up the morning after the 2016 election and I felt like my brain had been blown apart by the results. Uh, I had just gotten a PhD in American history. I'd been obsessed with politics my entire life that I was so shocked by those events. It felt to me that I owe my ignorance was partly my own ignorance, but I think it also reflected some blind spots in American history as a whole. And that to me, it felt like in the with everything with it seeming like everything was collapsing around us that it justified another look at the american political tradition as a whole sort of taking a vantage point on the subject in a world where wow you know if eisen if hofstadter is writing in harry truman and eisenhower's america clearly we're not in that place anymore or at least it didn't seem that way to me at the time and so the format seemed to me a useful way of exploring some of those broader questions again I think the more modest uh, description of what I can do with the characters is showing sort of the world you get. It was the line that you get sort of like the ocean in a drop of water that, yeah, like, yes, this is only like one small perspective. But these actors, because of how they're positioned, provide a unique and important perspective to wrestle with. And I think that the larger arc of the book sort of what took me away from that, what I wanted to do at first or rather like what i discovered along the way was you can almost say a journey from the sort of hostile consensus perspective which was never mine but it's like okay if that's your starting point what's the alternative i came in with like okay well the consensus has been abolished and the framework was just for changes just so much wider than we imagined that this was the vantage point of 2016 well if we've got trump on the right bernie on the left boundaries have collapsed i'm going to tell a new political history of the united states that shows the spectrum of debate I just came to find that as I was working on it really unsatisfying. And it was a journey from the boundaries have broken to like, no, 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 the boundaries are there. It's just that they are set within this constraint of imposed by democracy. So from collapsing boundaries to importance of building majorities and not taking for granted that those majorities can just be summoned out of thin air. It wasn't an accident that Trump emerged. If he had been saying different things, if he had behaved in different ways, he would have a different coalition and would not be president. Saying we have to focus on the institutions, the ideas, the rhetoric, the response of the sort of larger social context that makes majorities possible. To me, that was 
the arc of the book. And I think that at the end of it, with that framing in mind, I'm actually quite happy with how the methodology worked out. I think the book would have ended up taking a very different shape. You know, I was willing to abandon the motivating premise at the start, but I kept the format. And I kept that format because I think it proved to be a really useful way for exploring what turned out to be the main theme, this question of majority making. Terrific. So, I mean, I just want to, you know, emphasize for our listeners that while I really like the kind of blindsided by 2016 origin story, and of course you wrote and we'll link to it a kind of really interesting, more immediate response kind of to the question everyone began to ask, where did Trump come from? Um, you, you've done something that is just very different from the accounts since 2016 that, you know, the 1619 just being one, um, that kind of treat him as an inevitability. Um, and, you know, one one of the brilliant things you do is the Du Bois chapter, because that obviously places race where it deserves to be front and center in any account of American history. But uh, he didn't take the future to be inevitable. He didn't take Trump to be inevitable. Rather, he was a realigner. Um, and so just talk through a bit like what your agenda is in that chapter. I mean, there's the stuff about... Um, hoping for an alternative to the bipartisan structure. There's also the stuff about giving up on Eugene Debs, you know, in spite of sentimental attachment and backing Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and then here, there's his long trajectory, you know, with by the end of the chapter, um, having kind of entered, you know, partly self-imposed political exile, but getting credited by civil rights leaders for making possible a realignment, even though it's one that, you know, is self undoing and, you know, is going to lead to our present. So tell us, you know, whatever you want to say, your take on race in American history, your take on Du Bois uh, as an interesting way of, of, of returning the question of race to the, the master question, as it ought to be, of partisan realignment. Yeah. So let's start with Du Bois in particular, because those are very, very basic motivation that I had for sticking to Du Bois as a framework was one just well with each chapter I wanted to have a character who I felt would link up to some broader themes would help illuminate a moment but that was also I had something new to say about that person in particular and the new at least newish thing I felt I had to say about Du Bois was wow just like looking over his corpus he cares a lot about electoral politics you know there are just in the massive volume of massive library of scholarship on Du Bois, we have Du Bois as you name it, Du Bois as sociologist, Du Bois as sort of the, oh, like proto-existentialist, Du Bois as theorists of like global change, Du Bois as theorists of colonialism. But there wasn't the one source you could point to for Du Bois as theorist of American democracy. And not just democracy in general, how it should work, but democracy with this question of majority making and electoral politics in mind. So to me, it was just really exciting to see Du Bois's life as a sort of central figure of American intellectual political history, to see that this was a primary concern of his. And to just ask, what does Du Bois's life look like when you put that at the center of the frame? So to me, that sort of justified the project on the sort of grounds of, do I have something new to say about Du Bois? Also, I think just worth mentioning in this context is that in my mind, the Du Bois chapter, it's one of a pair. So the person I put him alongside is Walter Lippmann. And the reason why I do that is, well, gets back to the question of majority making. Well, a key majority in American history, arguably the central one in the book, is the New Deal coalition. It emerges out of the Great Depression, lasts into the 1960s, and is falling apart in some pretty spectacular ways today. All right. I want to tell the story about 
the rise and fall of that coalition. And the problem I encountered was that more or less nobody saw that New Deal majority coming. And which is really strange when you compare it to other moments of majority making American history. It's easy to see the Jack. There are some people like Martin Van Buren who forecasts the Jacksonian majority. There are people like Charles Sumner who forecasts the anti-slavery Republican majority. There are people like Mark Hanna who see a Republican majority. Later on in the Gilded Age, there later on there will be folks like Phil Schlafly, Kevin Phillips who see a polarized cultural politics oriented Republican majority emerged. There are in our time people who forecast an emerging Democratic majority that is quite different from the one that emerged um, earlier in the 1930s. So the strange thing about the New Deal coalition, arguably the most important coalition in American political history, arguably the strongest, but also the one that nobody saw coming. So I had to deal with just the strangeness of this moment. And to me, I also want to explain both how this majority emerges and how it falls apart. And such an important part of that story, I argue, and you can see it by the end of the Du Bois chapter, you see it in Lippmann, you see it in just throughout commentary in this period, the creation of a Republican coalition starting in the 1960s that will see itself as, in a sense, taking on both Harvard and Harlem, the sort of like liberal elite and this racialized underclass. And they say, we are the party of middle America against this sort of conspiracy of the top and the bottom against you. And by showing how Du Bois and Littman in some ways evolving along parallel tracks, including having some striking, uh, strikingly similar biographical facts in their lives, while of course also being separated by the fundamental fact of race, but seeing where they converge, where they diverge, these two thinkers who in their own ways both have profound insights in the American political system, also some pretty important blind spots along the way. And then how those causes, those very distinct lines end up getting thrown together in part by the force of Republican critique in the 1960s. And out of that, how a new politics emerged. All of that to me made it seem like this was a story, not just where Du Bois is salient, but where his perspective tells us a lot about both the making and the breaking of this New Deal majority. Now, sort of the question of sort of how all this fits into sort of race and American democracy. Do you want to go there next? Because I have that that is a theme that appears not just for Du Bois, but of course, like runs through the entire book. I just want to quickly say something. I mean, I want you to get back to that discussion with Sam. And so I just want to have a quick intervention, which is that one of the things about the book is like exactly how national focused it is. And if you were to tell a story about the rise of the New Deal coalition, one natural place to start would have been the development of Al Smith in New York. And the kind of social welfare state, that the kind of quasi-social welfare coming with the political machine trappings, which would have been a pretty natural place. And that it's not there. It's like kind of a notable thing on how rhetorically national this focus is rather than like in the governing weeds of America. So I'm just curious what you thought. Like, why not like have any action take place anywhere other than in Washington? Well, it's, it is, in, I think, informed by analysis of what happens at the state level. So, for instance, you see William McKinley in Ohio test driving something like the majority that will take shape in the United States after, as a whole after the 1890s. But the problem with the sort of the Al Smith as father of the New Deal coalition story is like, well, the experience of New York in the 1920s wouldn't tell you about Jim Crow. Right. And it wouldn't tell you about the development of the West. And so just the fact of these national majorities, how you have to bring them together. And so that by the 1930s, you have a New Deal coalition that stretches from black communists in Harlem to literally unreconstructed white supremacists in South Carolina. You know, the scope of that story and just the strange of that coalition, as important as a, a sort of New York in the 1920s experience would be, you don't get that other part of it. And where I think this links into sort of the disposition of the book as a whole and where maybe it doesn't fit with a lot of recent analysis of U.S. political history more generally is my focus on sort of the flexibility, the mutability, the changeability of these coalitions. So that in the instruction, I say that 
and sort of a problem that you're always going to have when you try and tell a big story about American history as a whole is that you sort of have two unsatisfying alternatives. One is, oh, here's just a bundle of stuff and then with like the vaguest of possible themes to hold it together. So it's just fact after fact after fact after fact, but there's no narrative there. On the other hand, you could have a really strong monocausal interpretation. This could be the focus on class conflict that defined progressive historians in the era of Charles Beard. It could be the focus on a liberal consensus that we associate with someone like Hofstadter. Or more recently, it could be a story about racial domination, capitalist domination, patriarchy running more or less unchanged from the founding of the country down to the present. And what happened with me is I felt like this focus on democracies and electoral coalition making was a good way of skirting that question by saying that we can have a central frame, this question of how you build a majority, but it just turns out that that question is open to change, open to contingency, open to complexity in a way that these sort of more monocausal narratives aren't. And that means it's not denying that there are strong elements of continuity in American history, but making allowing us to be open to the strangeness of the past and to something like this New Deal coalition and just the extraordinary diversity of the groups they uncovered, how these groups can be bound together at one moment and then fall apart that next. And to me, that allowed me to put the emphasis on change, this emphasis on disruption in a way that I think might be a little bit out of step with where a lot of political historians have gone in the Trump era. You know, I, I love that. And I just want to follow up um, kind of thinking about the New Deal coalition, because it, it does intersect with, you know, what we think about presentism, which I take to be good and inevitable, but it, it could skew the narrative uh, in certain ways. So the way I would put it is that your account of, of, you know, the making of the New Deal coalition is strongly informed by a desire to set up its breaking. And what that means is that there's an emphasis on its fissures and fragility. Uh, and we're given Du Bois and Lippmann when, you know, in fairness, we might note that Lippmann stands for a tiny number of people and Du Bois maybe even a smaller number. And that in real time, the New Deal coalition feels like a white working class coalition with some other folks involved. And actually, if we look at African-American voting patterns, you know, they're with the Republicans for a very long time for very understandable reasons. Um, you know, you don't want to overstate that. But um, so I, I guess, you know, the Al Smith question could be linked to just a question about what happens to the, 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 the kind of core of the New Deal coalition, which of course Donald Trump is going to inherit. Uh, once the, the Democratic Party does fissure and abandons its original core constituency. So I just push back a little bit on the sort of question of African-Americans in the New Deal coalition, because I think it gets to, in an exciting way, like this recurring theme of mine, what became a bit of an obsession as, as I was preparing the book, which is how sort of the strange bedfellows that politics can give rise to. Because it really is by 1936 that you see a fairly decisive shift within Northern and Midwestern states. So of course, Jim Crow South, you know, voting for African-Americans is not a question because it is a central pillar of the system. It's the denial of the suffrage. But in states where African-Americans do have the right to vote, by 1936, Democrats are doing quite well for themselves. You know, there's it varies from state to state, but there it is possible for FDR to carry Harlem in South Carolina at the same time. Keep coming back to this because it's so amazing. Right. But you also see the election of African-American Democratic politicians for the first time in the 1930s, all of which will help lay the foundation for the dynamite of the coalition eventually. But the fact that they are held alongside each other in the extraordinary moments like 1936, to me, that's just 
a question to be reckoned with and where the, the place of questions in the narrative as a whole gets to me sort of the useful character of presentism, I always think, is that the presentism, the present should raise the questions that you ask of the past, but it should never dictate the answers. And in this case, the best way to be, I thought, to be valuable in the present was to show some continuities with the present, but also the strangeness of the past, to remind us uh, that what the way things are now is not the way that things have always been. And this suggests possibility, well, if things have changed in the past, they can change in the future. Now, the way those changes will express themselves, you know, you're never starting from a blank slate. This is another thing that history can teach us. But by forcing us to reckon with the the strangeness of our own moment. To me, this is a useful way of reconciling the demands of a politically engaged scholar with the requirements of great historical scholarship. And with that in mind, I think we can have the proper understanding on the breakdown of the New Deal coalition, which I'm happy to talk about in more detail. But I just think understanding that breakdown does first require a really fine-grained discussion of what that New Deal coalition is. And almost in the moment of, I, the historian in me wants to say, especially the Columbia trained historian wants to say, sort of against the long shadow of, say, Ira Katznelson, fear itself, this argument that the defining fact of the New Deal coalition is this bargain with Jim Crow. Yes, that is crucial in so many respects, but I think that in popular consciousness, the focus on that Jim Crow story has managed to downplay, maybe even erase this shift within the North and the Midwest, this entry of African-Americans into the coalition, which is just as transformative in its own right. So the book starts off with this kind of, um, I don't know, about a description of you going to have dinner at Le Diplomat. And I will say, I, I was one of the first diners at Le Diplomat when I was a, a low-level professor at seat seat employee in uh, Virginia. Um, and I thought that it was Characteristic or something, something seemed off, and I just want to see what you think about this, which or at least like kind of highlights something in the book, which is that. So first of all, you you, you talk about feeling it starts off feeling like an outsider at this, when of course the people at the diplomat are like very much you, right? Like editor of of a journal of ideas so well worn it got made fun of in any hall, um, professor, you know, like it's and and in a lot of ways, I think that what you could tell a, a completely um your like uh I don't. Know, contrary story here, which is that these characters should be the hero of the story rather than the things that need to be disrupted, that um, you could tell it's kind of the, you know, we have this crazy democracy that goes up and down, has all of these different shifts and things, and like what what keeps it together and keeps America as, you know, uh, is like the hardworking civil servants, the boring of holes, the, um, you know, as as the magnetic fields put it, the um, the people doing something real. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, no, no, no. Um, the... Um, uh, what explains the hostility towards these characters? Um, uh, again, or their need, like, like, why not tell the story in controversy? Like, it's like a, or I mean, like, there, there's like the realigners, and then there's the kind of the stories of continuity that are necessary to make things not completely fall apart. Because I expect better from my class. You know, if we're so smart, if we're so capable, if we're so effective, why is the system, and maybe this is just sort of the angry left populist to me coming out, why is the system so manifestly failing to deliver for so much? And maybe it's childish to expect that in a world of extreme inequality that the people at the top of the system won't reward themselves with a night off from time to time. But I think that just given everything that was 
<laughs> surrounding us in that 2016 to 22 moment that it's okay to say the job that we have set from ourselves are hard. We are limited people. We are striving the best we can, but still to say that we can do better in this respect. And better is just you shouldn't go out for dinner. I mean, you should, I mean, the diplomats, like it's a nice restaurant and everything for Washington, but like you should see where Sam eats. It's like, okay. Now it's. <laughs> I've only eaten at per se once, uh, just for the for the record. Yeah, well, and of course now, like I think after the menu and the closing of Noma, I think we are like in a post like Uber fancy dining moment, which is its own. I think a podcast in its own right. But I think that the line that I kept coming back to um, comes from Stuart Hall. He talks about the harsh discipline of democracy, and I think that with our governing elite, but also with um, sort of in my own world, sort of left political actors, political activists, I think that across the board, even in this moment where everyone's talking about the crisis of democracy, there's a tendency to shrug that off, to say some from the question of political coalition building, like, okay, if we really want to build a majority, what are the constraints that we face? Who do we want to appeal to? How do we speak to voters in a way that they can understand, that responds to their concerns, and that reconciles like their needs with our goals? You know, to, that is one part of what the hardship Blown democracy means. But I think that in a democracy worthy of the name, a degree, a uh, greater degree of humility and acceptance from our public servants is also something that we are entitled to ask. And that in a if the job was getting done more effectively, like go have all the fancy dinners that you want. But it seemed to me in the sort of America, I think it was like 2019 when I had that dinner, and like down to today, that we're entitled to say ask a little bit more and to require from our wonkish technocrats down to our left lefty activists to take seriously the harsh discipline of democracy. Again, again, one of the things I found strange about the book I, it is, is there's no, like the policies don't ever show up. Like the, the thing that explains politicians success and failure is never, they did things that improve people's lives or failed to do things. But there are a lot of big totemic elections. And one of the things that, differentiates the successful ones, the ones that make it into the book, to the ones that are abortive, are that they produced ends that made people happy, on some group of people happy. Um, and there's no, and we can, you can, I mean, because you're kind of, you're taking from a political science literature, but not like, um, but like not emphasizing its methods, like, like whether the economy does well has a big effect on elections and certainly has a big effect on how successful and majorities maintain themselves. And so like the this is like the 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 realigners who make the choice of who makes it as the successful characters for the book, as opposed to all of the other choices who tried to lead majorities and even won elections, but then kind of it all rimmed out. Um, one plausible story is that they produced good results. Good results as measured by the major the beliefs of the majority, the fact that it's the richest country in the world, whatever you want to, you know, like, and so like the um, question is like, why, like, where is that in the story? Is like the success or failure of, of actual policies and changing people's lives and the kind of effects on, on political outcomes. Yeah. And so one quite one way of framing the book is to say that it's less concerned with who wins and loses than how they win and how they lose. So that you could say to go back, for instance, to like the 1930s moment that 
the question isn't just like, why does FDR win by such a large number and such a large amount in 1936, but why does he win with the coalition that he does? So why do you see this erosion of upper class support, this upsurge of working class support and the emergence of this multiracial majority, this transformation from 1932 to 1936? So it's those shifts within those coalitions that to me are striking, which allows you to take into account important failures as well. So why does, for instance, you know, sort of famously Barry Goldwater's collapse in 19. 64 does help set the stage for a GOP that compete for the South in a major way. So that an ex maybe this is informed to an extent by my belief that those broad structural factors, most notably economic growth, to an extent within politicians' control, but iffy at best in many respects, especially you know at earlier periods in American history when the American state is like so weak and the capacity for effective economic governance at national level just isn't there. If you can say that what happens in a given election is a subject of forces that are just outside of the control of any campaign. But what happens over the long term, sort of the structural framework, the discursive framework, the ideological framework, how that gets set is the driving concern of the book. So that the individual characteristics of any particular moment, that can be salient when I'm saying like, oh, if this person wins, this person loses. It matters that Democrats come into office in 1932 and not in 1928. But that how those concern, how elections play out over generations, not so much individual elections, but those different coalitions. That question, I don't think can be addressed in just the same way with, okay, is the system working? Is it not working? So we're going to head towards uh, the end of the book uh, and the end of our time together. Um, and I guess I want to return to that question I forecast at the very beginning. Um, you have this bravura chapter on on Obama. And like all the chapters, as you said, you, you wanted to say something new. And in this case, you uh, had a new new document. Uh, and of course, that provided the basis of your New York Times launch piece. Uh, but in the end, Obama is not an, a realignment politician. It seems as if he wasn't trying to be. Trump was. Bernie, alongside Trump, was. And that's what gave 2016, in spite of its outcome, it, its significance in our lives, since, you know, as you say, you we've been living in a certain fissuring partisan structure for a very long time. Obama consented to live in it. He had to. And so I guess I want to ask just as a design choice, why Obama? Why not? you know, and in the present, you do in a sense, and I'll just repeat uh, that, uh, what is it, Walter Dean Burnham and his absolutely staggering prediction, which I'd never seen, and which you report in your interlude, that Trump is coming, was really one of the highlights of the book. And yet, in a sense, he doesn't come in your narrative, at least as a, a full-fledged, you know, matter. So, Talk about, you know, the Obama chapter, why, why it has the significance you think uh, it does in your story, if you want the new document, but also like how, why you didn't end with, with, in a sense, our moment. Yeah, so the why I didn't end with Trump is in a way I felt I got to what I needed to say with the Phil Schlafly chapter. That's... Right. And one useful contribution is saying this, this Trumpian coalition, it does, it's not something that comes out of nowhere, it's not invented in 2016, it's something, the broad outlines of which you could see in the 1950s. So that you can draw a line from Schlafly coming out of the party of Robert Taft and Joseph McCarthy down to Trump, the party of Trump and Steve Bannon. To me, that was really exciting. And 
I think if the story is tr essentially Trump as the expression of this polarized Cold War politics that clicks into place very explicitly by the 1960s and that folks like Schlafly see coming even before that, well, you get the gist of the story. Trump won't be a surprise if you read that chapter. So then, okay, what do we do with Obama? And to me, what was exciting about him was seeing him as a someone who came into office with realigning ambitions and in fact did preside over a kind of realignment, just not the one he wanted. That with this manifesto on transforming American democracy that he co-writes as a law student at Harvard, you see him making the case for a revived version of that New Deal coalition, which in the context of the 90s down to the 2000s would in fact have been realigning. And that broad elements of this strategy inform his politics down to 2012 so that he wins in 2008 and 2012, not as the representative of the like so-called Obama coalition, meaning young people, college-educated whites, and racial minorities, but a sense that the Obama coalition to a significant degree is grounded in that older New Deal coalition with its surprising turnout, especially in the North and the Midwest with working-class whites. Well, that's striking to see the scope of Obama's realigning ambitions, even before he entered electoral politics, how that strategy sticks around and ends up being an important guiding factor down to 2012. But then how the realignment occurs, not just because of this, if we concede that Trump is a realigning figure, I would just say that it's not just because of his force on the system, but it's because Democrats helped set that up. And to me, it helps bring into focus how important 2012 to 2016 was. And choices that were made then of elite Democratic political actors to lean into their own version of this emerging Democrat majority. It was like, well, like the classic Chuck, Chuck Schumer quote, for every vote that we lose in what's well, like mining country or in Scranton, we'll pick up two in the Philadelphia suburbs. There's an electoral strategy behind that. Doesn't pan out in 2016, but reading the sort of, especially the second term of the Obama administration as contributing to this populist right-wing right wing realignment, the emergence of Trumpism. So saying it's not just that Trump discovered this stuff, but that Democrats helped to set the stage for it. And it's just even more ironic given how at odds that was with the vision of American politics that Obama came into the story with. So that's our one-two punch. It's like this person who you might not think had realigning ambitions, in fact did. They weren't what you would believe. And then the world that he helped give us was the opposite of what he intended. Just And that all of this was grounded in this sort of massive document that just hadn't been on people's radar before, to me, that made it just sort of, it was too good to pass by. And, and, and there's a legal theory angle, which, uh, you know, doesn't make it in the book, understandably, but I'll just mention that, you know, part of the story there is this relationship that Obama had with Roberto Unger at Harvard Law School. Um, all right. Well, so turning, you know, for a presentist book to the present and future, you know, we agree you know, history is about dead people and the only rationale for studying it is to get, you know, orientation uh, for our present and future. Um, and and yet I, I, I'm not totally clear in the end um, what that reorientation is in the sense that we know that there needs to be a, ma a majoritarian breakthrough. Uh, but of course, we also know, you know, it could happen in different directions. Um, and you're on board with the, you know, Carps and Robbins and saying we're in a gilded age in which we have, you know, a, a class D-aligned partisan struggle and, you know, gridlock as a result. And um, th there's a big debate about, well, which which party has a more, you know, credible, easy angle on kind of 
breaking through, becoming a, a working class party, a tr- forging a transracial majority, et cetera. Um, and so, I mean, if you want, you can look back to the Gilded Age chapter, which we skipped. It's really interesting. Or you can just, you know, talk it with your your kind of policy um, hat on. But like, what wh- what do we get out of the history other than knowing that we're in you know, gridlock that has to be broken by a majoritarian politics someday, you know, because maybe we're in gridlock for a really long time indefinitely. Um, is it a politician we're looking for, a great man or woman? Uh, is it some new structural reality, which without kind of altering the bipartisan cage that we're in, in your story, nonetheless does allow a realignment um, or it, it, what, what else has to happen? What are we looking for? What do we do? So another lesson from that Obama chapter, it's I think is useful to keep in mind here is one reason I think it's worth diving into is that from my perspective, Barack Obama is one of, if not the most effective politicians of his lifetime and of mine. And useful then to keep in mind that if he came into politics with this ambition, which is so, when I get one, another reason I was excited about that chapter, an ambition that's so similar to my own, well, the failure to deliver on that promise from this person who succeeded in so many other respects, I take that as a cautionary tale for the rest of us, a lesson in humility. And I think also as a historian, a lesson in humility that I take from studying the past is how often these people, these realigners who are so keen and so perceptive and able to see how to build a majority in one moment, it's not as if they have a lifelong gift for that. So the lessons of one moment can turn out to be profoundly unhelpful in another. So the need to attend in very, 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 very concrete detail to the requirements of the present, another uh, lesson to keep in mind, which makes me as a historian want to say, like, listen, the people who are out there, like actually winning elections now, turn to them, see what they have to say. But having offered that caveat that maybe you shouldn't listen to the historian, if you were to listen to the historian, I would say that to my mind, the question of majority making turns on a combination of factors and something that a few people point out in the book is that there's a lot about the book is that there's a lot of emphasis on messaging sort of the and that was true in the obama piece so and less attention as we were just discussing earlier just all right what policies do you want to bring into place uh, how are you supposed to match rhetoric on the campaign trail with what a government delivers and here i think the more satisfying answer would say that listen of course it's easy to sketch out these plans in theory. Life will always get in the way in a billion different in a billion different ways. But that having taking care to figure out what your intended majority coalition is going to be, the messages that you use to mobilize that coalition, and then the policies that you use both to deliver in the short term results, like for the country as a whole, yes, but also for the majority that you're trying to govern in the interest of, and then how you can use government power to build how you can use the government to build up those that institutional power over the long term. A sort of guiding inspiration for the book is Bayard Rustin for a bunch of different reasons. But one of them is his insistence on uniting sort of the energy of movements with the ability to wield power of like actual institutions. And having a system, and if we want to understand how the Obama project goes sideways, I think one important part of that story is a breakdown between the inspiring mis- the inspiring message, the vision of the coalition, and how you have the governmental institutions, the policy to back that up. And that is a different book in its own right. That's sort of a different collection of lifetime struggles in their own right. But I think that the first step to getting that story right is to confront just the reality, to think about majorities both as 
practical necessities, but also as a kind of moral obligation, especially for those of those of us on the left who say that we want to act in the interest of ordinary working people. It's like, okay, so if democracy is a useful, but a useful test for ourselves to see if we're doing the job right, and also a prerequisite for wielding power, then get the message right, get the campaigning part of the story right. And then in a sense, the hard part can begin. But that hard essential part is what really justifies it because it's creating a government that truly does govern in the interests of the country and the people that you say you want to act on behalf of so with that holistic perspective in mind you know spoiler alert there might not be from my perspective uh first from the perspective of someone with left-wing goals the future might not look terribly bright but if there is a way out i think that for all of its flaws this path is, is the best one yeah so this is actually uh, something i wanted to ask uh it relates to some of that which is um one of our Sam's old colleagues and uh, my old uh, teachers once said to me about academic papers, which you shouldn't try to hit home runs. You should hit a singular double. Try to say a single double and see what carries. Um, and the idea was that maybe the goal that the the visionaries are the ones who I mean, maybe they'll succeed, maybe they won't. But that um, in terms of achieving ends and like having you, you might want to aim lower and see what happens. Um, and I wonder a little bit, if you look at the periods over the course of our lifetimes, the periods in which uh, economic inequality, for instance, has declined, have been in the quietest periods of politics. So the um, se the, the second half of the Clinton administration, I mean, it had lots of pyrotechnics, but not a lot of um, uh, realigning efforts of any sort by anyone. Um, and the current period, where inequality has been falling for years, um, uh, um, uh, even the end of the Trump administration. I mean, the Trump, you know, basically through prudent macroeconomic management and, you know, keeping the unemployment rate low, all the, you know, whatever. Um, and so I wonder a little bit on having said all this, but your goal, like, like, are the realigners really the heroes of the story? Um, or should, more, more accurately, should we understand uh, the, the goal to be an effort to do realignments? Um, if the New Deal coalition locked in by accident, as you said, and you're saying, like, maybe you should just try to do the right thing and see if, if, if the fate shine on you rather than attempt to remake things. Question mark. And so this is, I, t I fully take the point on economics, but one initial response would be that the story that can be true for these questions about economic equality, which is so complicated, depends on so many different factors, not going to be true for other policy initiatives. You don't get the civil rights revolution by accident. You don't get the abolition of slavery by accident. You know, there are some questions where in order to provide a satisfactory response, you do need to have mobilized political intention behind it. But even on the question of economics, of course, you know, it doesn't take place within our lifetime. But hold on one second. But you do get national health, I mean, you get the great society kind, I mean, it's not, that's not, doesn't fit your story perfectly neatly. So, I mean, it's not all big policy changes, even. I, but but I mean, the great society is the product of, among other things, the LBJ stonking re-election in 1964, right? And that, which is, um, you know, it's an interesting coalition story in its own right, but it is the product of like, sort of majority making uh, like through and through. Yeah, notably not one of your character, anyway, but I'll leave it, let it alone. So go ahead. Yeah, no, no, totally. Um, but to say that 
Um, the question of sort of, again, so intentionality, that is an important part of the story. But going back to the period just before our lifetimes, when you have a decline of inequality that puts everything that we've seen after in the shade, of course, that is the 1930s into the 1940s. Now, the sort of the humbling lesson there is that it's a product not just of intentional global decisions, but of the Great Depression of World War II, these sort of civilization altering capacities. I just think that we can do it's a no, as much as I would, as much as I desire a reduction in economic inequality, I don't think that I'm not, not going to be one saying, like oh yeah okay so the price that we have to pay is another great depression and a war that blows up the world no not on the table not on the table but to the extent that we accept that politics can be within our control and that yes there are, we might get lucky and i end the book by saying that you can imagine a world where for instance because there is no lasting working class realignment that you have a sort of competition between Democrats and Republicans that ends up skewing the system in favor of working people. It's possible. And, you know, in the absence of a better alternative, it's something that I'd be willing to take. But if there is a hope for the system that is within our control, and just given that we are acting at the moment now responsible for our own choices, I think that rather than just saying we're going to keep our heads down, not think about those broader concerns and just try and do the best we can within the constraints we face. If there's capacity for a more conscious control of the system, which to bring it back to the founders is in a sense that sort of the animating rhetoric of the Federalists, that we are taking control of our destiny, that this is what a system self-government can mean at its best. Well, to me, that's what it looks like. It's a great way to end. It's It's been an amazing convo. Um, you know, I you've given a, a, a wonderful sense of just how good this book is. Uh, Tim uh, is one of the most gifted writers I've, I know. And the book is, uh, you know, it, it gets you to take a new uh, perspective on a lot of things that you thought, you know, and, and, and reconsider our, our present uh, in ways that I think are incredibly productive. So Tim, thank you for coming on digging a hole. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.